Welcome to episode 73 of the Eat for Endurance podcast. My name is Claire Shorenstein, and I'm a board-certified sports dietitian and runner based in Santa Cruz, California. I provide virtual nutrition services to teenage and adult athletes of all abilities, and I host this podcast to demonstrate that there is no one-size-fits-all nutrition approach towards optimal health and performance. Today, my guest is Heidi Strickler, a sports dietitian, trail runner, and self-proclaimed outdoor junkie based in Seattle. I got a listener request to do a show on relative energy deficiency in sport, also known as REDS or RED-S, around the same time that I heard Heidi on the Trail Society podcast, and I knew that she'd be a great dietitian to tackle this topic with me. I have covered this topic before, but it's been over two years, so it was time to revisit and do another deep dive. We covered the basic of, basics of REDS, including warning signs. We talk about the normalization of disordered eating, especially among athletes, intentional versus unintentional underfueling, practical advice on how to make sure you're eating enough and not just relying on hunger cues, losing your period and what treatment may look like to get it back, and so much more. I hope you enjoy this episode and find it helpful. So without further ado, here is my discussion all about Reds with fellow sports RD, Heidi Strickler. Heidi, welcome to the Eat for Endurance podcast. How's everything going today? Uh, going really well. Yeah, I can't, can't complain. I'm enjoying a, a nice summer day uh, in Utah, so it's a lot hotter than where I usually am in Seattle. But yeah, doing well. Yeah. Awesome. Um, so before we dig into today's sports nutrition topic, can you share a little bit about your background, both as a dietitian and as an athlete? Yes. Yeah. Uh, so as, I mean, they're very much blended, I guess there's a lot of overlaps, kind of a, a little bit of a Venn diagram. Ultimately I got into nutrition as an athlete, you know, I had never really thought about food or nutrition when I was growing up, when I was in high school. I mean, I always loved food. I was a good eater, but didn't really take any interest in it. And didn't actually even plan to study it. I, from the time I was really young, I always knew I wanted to have a career where I was working with athletes in some aspect. But you know, I didn't necessarily know exactly what that looked like. I thought about physical therapy and uh, orthopedic, like surgery and things like that. And uh, you know, after taking kind of a year of classes my freshman year, my uh, my advisor, you know, recommended that I look into nutrition. Uh, the university that I went to had an option of a sports nutrition specific major as well. And so I took my first class, which was food science, and I was totally sold. I'm a big science nerd. So I was just like fascinated. And I I think one of the reasons I was interested in it is I, I went to college on a soccer scholarship. Soccer was actually my primary sport growing up. I started playing when I was three and it really kind of was eat, breathe, sleep soccer. and so it was super, super competitive, but never again, like never, no coaches ever, never talked about nutrition, just was not talked about at all. And then when I went to college, our athletic trainer gave us like a little nutrition 101. Uh, and I don't know, I like just kind of started realizing, oh, like what I, just how the impact the nutrition could potentially have on, on performance and kind of uh kind of took it from there and I ended up graduating with a triple degree in dietetics and nutrition sports and exercise and exercise science and you know was always still you know fascinated with just the human body and anatomy and physiology and still am and partway through my 
collegiate soccer career actually switched to track and cross country. I had also never run in my life, but I was always the weird kid on the team who liked the fitness component of soccer. And so uh, I ended up switching just due to like soccer wasn't a great fit for me, unfortunately, at the university that I went to and totally fell in love with running. And I grew up in the mountains in in Utah. And so pretty quickly after college, transitioned to trail and ultra running. And uh, over the course of my you know, dietetics career, as well as my athletic career, I've oftentimes like focused my expertise professionally on my experiences personally. And so, you know, sports nutrition was always a really big focus of mine. I always knew ultimately that wanted to be my goal. And so over the course of my career, I've been a dietitian for nine years now, nine and a half years. And I've kind of honed my expertise more and more and more. And uh, so endurance athletes is kind of one of the areas that I focus on as a dietitian, endurance athletes and mountain athletes. I said trail and ultra running is still my kind of truest, truest love. If I could do it every day, I would be happy. Uh, but I also just love being active in the mountains. So uh, backcountry skiing and skiing, I bike, I biked, raced a little bit. I've raced triathlon a little bit. Uh, I love mountain biking and gravel, gravel riding. I like climbing, you know, I like open water swimming camping, backpacking, you know, just being active outdoors. Uh, so we do focus on like the mountain athlete and the endurance athlete. I also focus on female bodied athletes and do a lot of work with nutrition in the menstrual cycle and how the menstrual cycle can impact our nutrition needs and vice versa. Uh, I specialize in plant-based athletes and while I'm not plant-based and now I did spend a lot of my kind of competitive running career being some, some variation of plant-based. Mm. And then I also specialize in athletes with eating disorders or relative energy deficiency in sport or reds, primarily because when I was in college, I started to develop some disordered eating, mostly through sport, unfortunately. Uh, my diet, di- my dietetics education also didn't help that. You know, I mm-hmm. learned a lot of um, unhelpful, <laughs> unhelpful things. And uh, over the course of, you know, my early 20s, mid 20s, it really kind of, it ebbed and flowed a bit, but ultimately uh, became a, a full-blown eating disorder in my late 20s. And I ended up going to eating disorder treatment. And so now I really focus a, a lot of my career on speaking to young athletes, high schoolers and college athletes, coaches and parents and even like doctors and just doing a lot of education around um, just like, I think, giving giving some awareness to all the things that can be encompassed in those early stages. And I think there's so many things that are normalized in, especially in the world of sport when it comes to disordered eating patterns and body stuff, and even things like an athlete losing their period during the season, these things are very normalized, but shouldn't be happening. And so I think being able to talk to some, talk some truth to that and just give young athletes the information I really needed to hear at their age uh, and, and didn't. And then yeah, kind of provide that education to coaches and parents too, because I think there's a, there's a huge amount of influence that coaches and parents have on young athletes. And so being able to help them understand how they can be supportive or not supportive um, of their young athletes. So that's yeah. kind of me in a nutshell. That was awesome. Thank you so much. And <laughs> yeah. I, I actually have to say that's probably one of the best full-on descript. Like when I've a- I asked that question, when I get my RD um, guests on. And that was a really great response. I like that. And it makes me want to ask like a thousand questions. That's the only problem. 
Our topic, of course, today is relative energy deficiency in sport, red S, and we're also going to go into the menstrual cycle nutrition. Mm -hmm. But I also, I almost want to just like put a pin in that for one second and ask a few follow-up questions on your background. For For one, as a dietitian, I've, so we're kind of like, I've been a dietitian for about nine years there. Mm-hmm. I was never a soccer player. I mean, we have very different backgrounds in some yeah. ways, but yeah. there's, there is a lot of, um, there are so many, many themes I see in dietitians, especially sports dietitians. I'm yeah. curious what you think about how many dietitians have had some form of eating disorder or disordered eating. And that's like, and especially as an athlete, yeah. I know I've had eating disorder disorder yes. in the past. And I've yep. shared that on this show before. Um, I feel like it's such a part of so many people's stories, you yeah. know, um, which I guess isn't surprising. You think about therapists that go into mm-hmm. therapy that themselves needed therapy or whatever, right? Yeah. Like it's yeah. part of why we're passionate about what we do. Um, but it's just something that's always kind of struck me. I'm like, oh, that's interesting. And also the fact that it's such just disordering is such a normalized part of things. Um, and I, I don't know if you listened to the recent Trail Society podcast with Amelia yes. Boone, but yeah. yeah. Yep. So there was this whole, there were part of that discussion is like, hey, what is normal and what isn't normal mm-hmm. and her finally seeking treatment. So just a few things that are on my mind. I know this is a little tangential, but yeah, yeah. I, I'm curious what your thoughts on that are. Yeah, I think, I mean, a couple of different components. It's, you know, that you do see loads of dietitians, you know, working in the space, sports nutrition or not with eating disorders. And I was on actually another podcast a few months ago at this point with a couple of dietitians. We were all having the same discussion of we all had mm. eating disorders and it's kind of the chicken or the egg. Yeah. Just different where, you know, for me, as much as I can remember, I mean, while I do remember like having, being aware of calories and restricting a little bit before I decided to change my major, I don't ever remember choosing to study nutrition so I could be better at restricting. Like I don't remember that being sure. part of my process. It was more like the dietitian education plus a million other things led to my eating disorder. Whereas some other dietitians that I know actually pursued a dietetic education in order to be able to do their do their eating disorder better. Oh, interesting! Such a gross way to put it. Yes, but um, but it is so. Especially I think in the era that we you know where we were getting educated, it was all about just weight loss. Like weight loss. It's yes. so gross. Yeah, I know. Um, and so, uh, so yeah, it, I mean, I think it is fascinating. I also, you know, like, yeah, I, it wasn't until after I, you know, went through my own, like, kind of really hit rock bottom with my eating disorder, went to treatment, and then made it public that I did decide to really change my focus and focus on that as a, like, focus on athletes, because I think there is a lot of power in any helping profession to mm-hmm. feel like your clients or patients or whatever you call them, like feel seen. Uh, yeah. And I think there is a lot of power in being able to tell my like high schoolers and college kids, like, Hey, I've been there. Like I've been in your shoes. I know, I know what you're going through. Obviously everybody's experience of their eating disorder is different, but I also do. And I don't know what your experience was, but just on the normalization component, it was actually for me, like, like the pressure I felt as a dietitian to eat, eat perfectly Mm. and like walk the talk especially in like the space and time that I was working in is a part of what fueled my eating disorder like I felt like I you know had to you know people would all you know the comments that people make when you get to hear your dietitian like oh don't look at what I'm eating or oh I don't normally eat like this or oh your dietitian you must you know 
love kale you salads you want and this, eat just yeah. chicken breasts. Like you won't want this brownie that yeah, I made. I'm like, yeah. yes, I do. Yes, Give me I the do, brownie. Actually. Yeah. Um, <laughs> me too. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Please. Uh, so I have a lot of shame about yeah being a dietitian with the eating disorder, and that's also why it took me so long to get treatment and and kind of come out about my eating disorder because I I thought it was going to ruin my career. Um, mm. and I, but it was a really important part of my healing process and it was honestly like the best thing <laughs> that I could have done for my career. I think because of what I said, where like it, you know, I think people work with me because of that, not, yeah, not, no, in spite of it, I guess, but yeah, it yeah. is very I- interesting. Just the, the normalization and just all of that, like diet culture BS. Um, yep. Yeah. And, and I had so. a. I had a very different experience in that my eating disorder was a lot earlier in life, Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. like started in high school and it was in college and kind of my early, I was a career changer. I didn't go back to school for it to be a dietitian until I was 30. Um, so I started late, but so it was kind of already in the rear view mirror, Mm -hmm, I guess. mm -hmm. And it was really fueled largely by getting into distance running because I also got into that much later. And my interest in sports nutrition and all of that. But the disordered eating part definitely lingered. That nor- yeah. more normalized form of disordered eating that is For kind sure. of like, oh, well, I'm an athlete and I'm a dietitian and all that. And I do remember being, you know, just in schooling to become a dietitian. And I look back, I'm like, whoa, there are some <laughs> behaviors there. Or even like, like I actually just posted about this the other day. I was like, like, holy crap, I can't believe how little... I feel like how I would like go into fueling a marathon or whatever, just mm. being like, barely, I didn't really understand. And they don't teach you sports nutrition early on. So I didn't no, really get it. And so I would, I would basically take nothing. Yeah. And, um, you know, how little can I get away with taking mm-hmm. rather than like, let's see how much I can train yeah. my gut to take, which is right. like where we're at now. Um, but it's, it is very interesting just seeing the shift. Um, mm-hmm. But anyways, we digress, yeah. but this is all related yeah, we because could do we are talking about, I know, oh my God, I, this is, this is my downfall <laughs> with talking to other RDs. And yeah. I've said this before, but I love having dietitians on the show because not only is it, a, this is literally how I network because yeah. I work by myself. I'm like a virtual solo practitioner. This is how you I connect both. to people, how I meet other dietitians, how I support other dietitians. I love it. We talk about fun things. It's great. Um, but yeah, then we, then we kind of get on these tech We do. So yeah. Anywho, for the listeners, let's get on topic. It is all about Red S. We're going to talk about menstrual cycle nutrition. Um, and I ha- I did do this uh, topic before, but it was ages ago. So um, I want to revisit it. And I know this is one of the things you're particularly passionate about. Um, so I think by now, most people have heard about Red S. But just for anyone who may not be familiar, can you just explain briefly what Red S is? Yeah, so REDS stands for Relative Energy Deficiency in Sport, which is why we call it REDS because otherwise it's a it's a mouthful. Uh, is and it REDS or Red S? Term... I just realized I've been saying Red S. Is it REDS? Is that what you're supposed to say? Well, so the so I just attended the female athlete conference. Okay, in and they said Boston <laughs> in 2023, and there there's an update coming on. Ah. Reds and they decided okay. to remove the hyphen and just call uh, it Reds okay. to like streamline right. even thumbs like you know hashtags like you can't do hashtag uh, Red S. So okay. sorry to interrupt, but that was like I was like no, oh god, totally am fine. I saying it wrong? Yep. Okay, mm-hmm. cool, yep. thanks. All so right, previously could have been Red S. <laughs> yes. Going forward, as of October twenty twenty three, it will cool. be Reds. Reds, uh, got it. So Reds. Uh, so yeah, so Reds 
stands for relative energy deficiency in sport. And uh, initially the term was like coined in 2014 and it was kind of an expansion on what used to be called the female athlete triad. And essentially the female athlete triad was this like syndrome or like trifecta of symptoms that involved like menstrual dysfunction as one corner of the triad, uh, bone health or low bone density, bone stress injuries, et cetera, as the other corner of the triad. Um, and then just low energy availability or essentially a mismatch between calorie in calories in and calories out. And so the, the female athlete triad existed for a long time, but over time, we realized that this syndrome, essentially, when an athlete is not taking enough calories to meet their exercise energy expenditure, plus their energy needs from the rest of the day, that that syndrome, that experience of LEA, or low energy availability, happens to all genders, not just females, and affects so many systems of the body besides just menstrual function and bone health. And so we came up with this term, REDS which now is presented as more of a wheel versus a triangle. And essentially this kind of cascade or like milieu of, health, of body systems that are affected include our endocrine system, uh, our metabolic system, our um, hematological system, or essentially like our blood health, our growth and development, our psychological development, things like depression, um, anxiety, OCD, moodiness. Uh, our cardiovascular system, you're going to see things like lightheadedness, low resting heart rate, dizziness, our GI function, our immune function, our menstrual function, and our bone health. And how these body systems are affected and in what order is pretty dependent on the person and, you know, many, many times. But really kind of the the etiology or like what happens is when a body is undernourished, when they're in this low energy state, essentially creates stress in the body. And when a body is stressed chronically, it's going to produce uh, cortisol, which is a body stress hormone. And part of the problem is when stress hormone or cortisol is being produced at high levels, it can't produce, it doesn't have the building blocks for the other hormones in our body. Things that have to do with menstrual function and bone building and growth and development. Um, and then our metabolism slows down. You know, if my body's not being given the nutrients it needs, it intelligently is going to say, I'm going to slow down the rate that I'm using energy to preserve and conserve. And so it's with that metabolic slowdown that you really see that cascade of effects happening where you see, you know, an inability of a bone to rebuild or nutrients are being leached from the bone. You see the heart rate slow because, um, because again, the body's trying to conserve energy and the heart, heart is getting weaker as again, nutrients are being pulled from the heart. Um, people will get cold more often. Uh, that's why things like immune function uh, and injury risk goes up, you know, nine to 14 times. Our GI function slows down because um, everything else is slowing down. And so our like motility and, and digestion will, will slow as well. So it does kind of become this like cascade of effects and they're all pretty interconnected but i think like i said it's it can be really challenging because the all those different symptoms there isn't like a specific order where it's like oh you'll see this one first and this one second and so it's not this automatic oh if i look for this symptom i know i'm dabbling in reds and the other problem is again like a lot of the symptoms that are part of some of those early warning signs of reds 
are also, again, really normalized experiences, especially mm-hmm. in endurance sports. So things like iron deficiency, um, a low resting heart rate, GI issues, and just like overall, like getting sick and injured. But, and or even like losing a period, you know, there've been a couple surveys put out there and up to like 50% of athletes, like female bodied athletes, think it's normal to lose their cycle in like a high, like either in competition season or in high training season. And that shouldn't be happening. Um, so there's just a lot of normalization, which also ends up in a lot of these symptoms being kind of brushed under the rug. Uh, so it's kind of crazy to me that that's still thought as normal. Like, like I feel like there's so much talk about yeah. how losing your period is not normal and people are more aware of that. And it's still, it's like shocking to me when I still hear that, you know what I yeah. mean? It's, like, and it's, that's bonkers. Yeah. And it's, I mean, I know for me, when I was in collegiate sport, it was a badge of honor to like, when I lost my period, yeah. it meant that I was fit and I was training hard enough. And there still is, while we've come really, really far, you know, when I present to groups of, you know, high school athletes or collegiate athletes or, you know, put out surveys or whatever, we, we have come so far since I was in college 10 years ago in terms of awareness of periods and talking about them, et cetera. But we still have so far to go. There's still so much toxic language and messaging oh, yeah. and just kind of confusion um, about, yeah. about those topics. So, yeah. And I think it's, well, in terms, like you listed a lot of things that we can, that are part of Red S, but we would mm-hmm, also mm-hmm. call like red flags or warning signs in a way mm-hmm. for Red S. Yeah. And I guess when you think about under fueling and red, and red, sorry, I keep saying Red S, Reds, until October and then you can't. Until October. Okay. Yeah, I'm going to yeah. just get in the habit of saying it now, Reds. Um, you know, I think of it as kind of this like spectrum because mm-hmm. of course it's, it's really chronic underfueling and chronic low um, low energy availability that kind of eventually leads to this place of depletion and all these you know effects on the organ systems um but yeah i mean is there something that you would say differentiates between kind of un- between underfueling and kind of full-blown reds is it like the number of symptoms like like when you're kind of assessing someone um and actually, I, I, I guess also in a question is like, who is diagnosing reds? Like, mm-hmm. how can you say someone definitively has reds? Because it's like, I feel like there's a lot of gray area in there. Do you, yes. you, do you yeah. know what I'm getting? Yes. Yeah. It's yeah. A lot of gray area. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of gray area. Um, I mean, so I think a couple things uh, from the, there's actually a really interesting, and I'm I'm not sure if you've like talked much about it, read much about it, but mm-hmm. in the past couple of years, we're learning more about essentially like what we call within day energy deficits versus like end of day mm. energy deficits mm-hmm. from the standpoint of uh, when you talk about like chronic low energy, chronic low energy availability and how like problematic that can be and how that ends mm-hmm, up leading mm-hmm. to reds. There's been a lot of really interesting research, especially in, in the realm of like female bodied athletes specifically male bodied athletes are affected also, but it seems that female bodies are affected more severely from what we call within day energy deficits. And essentially what that means is an athlete could hypothetically like meet their energy needs at the end of the day. And so they are either in energy balance or maybe even an energy surplus by the time they Mm -hmm. go to bed. But if they've had a really like large and, and or prolonged energy deficit within the day. So within day energy deficits, that still can start to perturb or disrupt their hormonal function and their mm. HPA axis and, and create a lot of those symptoms of reds as well. 
And so, and I think that almost is one of the biggest, one of the biggest problems. And like, er, I see in terms of the area of unintentional underfueling, we're not talking about like yep. intentional restricting or, or eating disorders, but just like timing and people have no idea how important that role of timing is. And especially, you know, if athletes are training in the morning and they don't want to eat before, like, it's kind of like, oh, well, you know, it's okay. And, um, you know, a lot of athletes aren't being intentional about getting adequate nutrition during and eating adequately before and then getting something in right after. And it's that time in their own training where you're going to have the greatest deficit in terms of energy during your day, the biggest kind of chunk um, just because of the energy expenditure that goes into exercise. And so if you're not going into that adequately nourished and fueling adequately during and then, you know, getting something adequate after, you really run that risk of having a big deficit at that point. And so then you do try and a lot of people think, oh, well, I can just, you know, eat a big dinner. I can play catch up. And while hypothetically you, you might end up in energy balance by the end of the day, your body still went through a lot of damage during that time. And over time, that can add up, even if you are meeting your energy needs each day. If you're having those consistent deficits, that's the problem. And I think that was you know, definitely kind of my experience early on where I probably wasn't like, I was probably meeting my energy needs, but I just got in a really bad habit of like fasted training every day. And that was really problematic for my hormonal function and my bone health, et cetera. Um, so that was, yeah, side trail. And now I can't remember the answer. No, no, but this question. is, no, well, we were talking about kind of the gray area and the spectrum, but I think that's mm-hmm. such an important thing to mention because and I'm, look, I'll be fully honest. Like there are, there are times and I know what to do. Right. <laughs> and I, oh, yeah. I talk to my clients about, cause there'll be times where I am not practicing when I'm preaching. And I always like mm-hmm. fuel before and I'm taking on stuff during whatever, but then maybe it's just not enough where I wait a little too mm-hmm. long afterwards mm-hmm. or things get off. I'm distracted, like whatever yeah. you yeah. feel it. You oh, definitely sure. yep. feel it. Right. I feel like garbage. Yeah. Right. And it's not normal. You're not supposed to feel that way. Yeah. Um, and, and, and so I think the important, and, and some people are like, oh, well, I'm just so used to not eating breakfast and, mm-hmm. you know, and so we're working on kind of trying to work it in. And that the way I explain it to people, well, there are a few things at play, like, you know, first of all, meeting protein requirements, we know that we need to spread that out throughout the day. We don't want to just have like yeah. one giant meal of protein or whatever, right? Yeah, like yeah, that's yeah. not the optimal way to get your protein in. So we really don't, you know, don't want to do that. And I, and I talk to people like about the difference between like, like feeling like you need something or you, you can get away with doing something or whatever. And like what you should do mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. really reach the goals that you're trying to reach and feel good. Right. Um, yeah. And like, I talk about eating opportunities and that's why I'm always pushing for like consistent eating and nutrient mm-hmm. timing and all that stuff. And it's less about the recovery window necessarily than it is just about, Hey, like it's time to eat. It's been several hours. You were out running, mm-hmm. whatever, you know? Yeah. So a hundred percent. And I think it, it's all part of like, it's like a cog in the wheel and it's all part of that bigger picture and like what kinds of patterns you're getting into as well. Because as you said, it's, it's one thing. It was just like you do this one day and it never happens again or whatever. And you'll probably feel it as we said. Um, but if you're doing this on a consistent basis, like that's doing shit to your body. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. Um, and I think when people think about reds and under fueling a chronic under fueling, they're thinking more about, Oh, where am I at the end of the day? Mm-hmm. Not necessarily what is the overall picture yeah. look like of my day, right? right. Um, yep. Or the individual part. So I think that's super, super important. I thank you for bringing that up. Yeah, um, sure. yeah. And I don't remember what else I was getting at there either, but I think that's fine. <laughs> yeah. Um, oh, I know what I was going to say. 
you mentioned unintentional, and that's kind of the mm-hmm. next thing I want to talk about. Um, you, of course, work with a lot of people who have disordered eating and eating disorders. And then, as we said, disordered eating is almost like normalized athlete eating for many people. And it's like mm-hmm. very tricky to kind of untangle or disentangle yeah. all of that, right? Um, yeah. Like what's just being a very dedicated athlete versus like what's, hey, that, that's actually disordered eating and not healthy for you. Um, but then there's the, there mm-hmm. are genuinely people who are trying hard. They think they're really getting everything they need in. They're doing their best and they are still under fueling because their energy demands are just super high or they just don't have the knowledge or whatever it may be. Um, and I think it's, it's just interesting to kind of separate out those different paths. Oh, wait, are you still there? Yeah. Can you hear me? Oh, I, oh your picture disappeared. All right. That's fine. <laughs> just want to make sure oh, I still yes. am yes, here I recording know. you. Okay, cool. Yeah. I can't see yeah, you, but yeah. That's fine. Um, yeah. So, so I guess my, my question there is really like how you are, and maybe this is a tricky question because I know everyone's path towards recovery is different and every Mm -hmm. client requires individualized recommendations, but maybe you can talk more broadly about the different approaches that you take here in these two types of situations where you do have someone who's like genuinely, genuinely trying to get there, but is in this bad place and other people who are more intentionally kind of restricting when you're, when you're helping someone kind of with reds regain health and return to exercise. Yeah, I so I think when when it comes to like the unintentional underfueling piece, uh, I mean, I do say so when I work with like high school and collegiate student athletes, I think especially like mm-hmm. female bodied student athletes, just because I think there's a lot more stigma or normalization of a female person under eating. But I think high school and collegiate female student athletes that I work with are the most unintentionally underfueled group that I've ever worked with. And I've worked mm. with, you know, Olympians, pros and everything in between because of a lot of different reasons, school schedule, and again, like just no education, normalization, a whole host of reasons. Um, so I think when it comes to this like unintentional underfueling piece, I think it is either based on lack of education um, or like really high training load. I think those are kind of the two components. And I think one of the hard things is, and I share this with, you know, coaches and parents and, and athletes is that un- like, the real bummer is that whether or not you're you have an eating disorder or you're just totally unintentionally underfueled, like the impact on your body is the same. It's not like, mm-hmm. well, I'm not intentionally restricting, and so it's it's not as bad for my body. Like, unfortunately, it is. And and it, I mean, from the stand, like the one caveat is that you don't have to work through like the mental and psychological process, which is super grueling and exhausting. And those roots can run really deep and make this really challenging. But from a, a physical harm on the body from bone, heart, immune system, et cetera, et cetera, unintentional or intentional, your body doesn't know the difference. It just knows it's not getting enough. So, um, but I do think there is just, I mean, I think it's kind of split between those two categories of lack of education and just high training load or both. You know, I've definitely worked with athletes where it's a combination and they really have no nutrition knowledge and their training load is just crazy high. Um, and so, or even just, again, like societal, you know, you know, fill half your plate with fruits and veggies. No, actually don't like, yeah. <laughs> that's not what you should be doing. 
But I have so many athletes who are honestly like trying what they think is healthy eating, but it's yeah. not athlete eating. And there's yeah. a big difference between healthy athlete eating and like society's version of healthy eating. And I think that's the gap that really needs to be talked about more is as an athlete, your plate should not be half veggies like all day, every day. That's going to cause a lot of like, again, fiber is going to reduce absorption of other important nutrients. It's going to fill up your stomach. You're going to probably end up under eating and you're probably going to end up with massive GI issues. Um, and so you kind of have that piece where I definitely have some people come to me just interested in improving their fueling, maybe working on some GI issues, prepping for a race, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And there generally is, I would say, 95% of the people who come to me, inintentional or not, are under fueling just because of the normalization of it. Um, and so you do have that that unintentional piece. And there it is. It's just like it's, it's education. It's um, teaching them, you know. I kind of have four different, I talk about like fueling first, fueling fully, fueling freely and fueling frequently are kind of my like four pillars. And so we'll kind of go through those. And I just talk about the role of complete meals and all the different food groups and proper timing and a lot of those things. And then helping them understand how to navigate things like the timing of training and and eating and some of the fear around I'm going to have stomach issues when I run or or whatever it is. Uh, And then you do have kind of that kind of spectrum into eating disorder and obviously can i can i ask one question actually can we i want to so yeah i want to definitely want to address eating disorder um first of all i love the it was fueling first fueling fully fueling freely and what was the last one frequently frequently love it um and maybe because one of my questions was you know maybe you can give some practical advice to our listeners who want to make sure they're eating enough, but don't want to be counting calories or macros or kind of get into that tricky area, especially when there is, maybe it's not disordered eating necessarily, but if that's something that someone doesn't want to do, and we don't necessarily want to encourage that, especially with that fueling freely, which I think is part of that. But, um, you know, it's, it's that whole, like, how do we make sure we're getting enough without going down that road of tracking? How do we balance listening to our body, knowing sometimes we need more than it's telling us to? Um, so I don't know if that plays into the, all the fueling first and fully and Definitely. freely and frequently, um, if you want yes, to expand upon does. that at all. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I would love to hear so, yeah, more about I, that. I, I mean, I don't encourage tracking generally speaking. I think it mm-hmm. ultimately is like, does more harm than good in most spaces. Um, really the only time I'll get into numbers is if we're talking about like, if it's an ultra runner and we're looking at yeah. grams of carbs per hour or whatever. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and so I think, I mean, it definitely is kind of those four, four pillars. And I mean, when, if I get into those quickly, you know, fueling first, it kind of is fueling first, supplement second, where uh, yes. food first, supplement second, from the standpoint of sure, like, you know, calcium, vitamin D, magnesium for bones, iron for like, you know, getting your ferritin up, et cetera, are all fine and good. But if your body's not getting adequate calories, those supplements aren't really going to do much of anything. And so understanding that, that while supplements can be really important, for sure, for iron deficiency, vitamin D, bone health, very important. And you need, they, they, they don't take the place of food. Um, And then fueling fully is just including all food groups on your plate. So I think making sure you're getting carbs, proteins, fats, fruits, and veggies with all meals and helping athletes understand, like I talked about, that half their plate shouldn't be veggies all the time or fruits and veggies all the time, that that fiber can actually be problematic for 
athletes, especially, you know, depending on like if they're all their meals are have a high fiber load. And so it's helping them understand most of the time, like that plate shouldn't be much more than a third of like those really high fiber veggies and why. Um, Mm -hmm. Fueling freely is incorporating all foods. You know, I firmly believe that all foods fit. Um, And so sometimes that carbohydrate on your plate might be a donut and other times it might be quinoa and they're ultimately equal. I always bring up this really great study by Brent Ruby from a few years ago, looking at recovery after intense bouts of exercise. And he had these athletes run through the same, you know, bout of exercise twice with a washout period in between. And one time after the training session, they had, you know, a like one unquote healthy sports nutrition recovery meal. And after the second bout or vice versa, it was crossover. They did a fast food meal and the meals were matched for calories, carbs, fats, proteins, vitamins, and minerals to make sure that, you know, there was no discrepancy there. And then he actually did muscle biopsies and blood work to measure markers of inflammation and muscle recovery. And they were identical across both meals. And I think a lot of people are so surprised by the fact that the body can recover just as well from fast food as it can from like this healthy sports nutrition meal. But the body just knows macronutrients in so many regards. Like it knows it's getting carbs and how those break down, fats and how those break down and proteins and how those break down. And so like, there's so much fear mongering with mm-hmm. food that really gets in the way of people getting adequate nutrition and feeling like they have to find the right thing or the perfect thing. And so it's just helping people understand that like your body will do something with better versus nothing pretty much every time. And, yeah. uh, and then the frequently piece, which, like I said, I think is probably one of the biggest areas that people struggle with. And that might mean, you know, eating like eight times a day, if that's like a snack before a morning training session and then breakfast after a morning snack, lunch, snack, maybe two snacks between lunch and dinner, depending on the timing. And if there's another training session in there and then dinner and an evening snack. And so really letting people know, like, you should be eating every two to three, two to four hours. Um, as you know, as an athlete and active person, obviously that's going to vacillate a little bit. And then I think the other component is kind of demystifying this idea of like eat when you're hungry. And mm-hmm. you know, intuitive eating is really great. I think there's a lot of important principles with intuitive eating. I think with athletes, though, if you're only eating intuitively from the standpoint of eating when you're hungry, you're probably going to be underfueled. Yeah, because totally. a lot of people aren't hungry when they wake up at 4 or 5 a.m. to train or they're not hungry right after. But you've got to get something in your body at those times. And so that's the other piece of it is helping athletes understand that just because you're not hungry, it doesn't mean that your body doesn't need nutrition and how to navigate that situation. You know, how to find things that you can stomach when you're nauseous or when you're really not hungry. And there's no right or wrong. Like it's finding what works for you. And that might be liquids or solids or sweet or salty or or anything in between. But also really like personalizing that nutrition to them because I think it is. It's like, you know, I don't want to have the wrong thing or people get in this box of like, these are breakfast foods and I don't like breakfast foods. And so I'm just not going to eat breakfast. It's like, no, like in the United States, those are breakfast foods. But like, you can eat whatever you want. (laughs) You're whatever you want. Hey everybody, sorry to interrupt, but if you're enjoying this episode, I'd really appreciate it if you could take a minute to help me out. You can subscribe to the show, which is so helpful. You can share it with your friends or whoever else you think would be into it. You can rate and review the show wherever you listen. 
All of this supports me and helps me keep this show going and growing. You can also support me by heading on over to my Patreon page, which I'll link to in the show notes. You can donate $1, you can donate $3, $5, whatever you feel comfortable donating. This helps offset the costs that, that I pay personally for the show to keep going since I don't have sponsors and helps just support content creation. So I really do appreciate any donations you can make. Thanks so much. Let's get back to the episode. So at least you have like the salads out and you have all the meats and whatever, like you can have anything at any time. Totally. So for sure. So, yeah. So I think like looking at like kind of those pillars is really how I talk athletes about these are, these are things you can do to kind of start to make sure you're not under fueling. And then it is also just talking about the symptoms of reds that aren't talked about, you know, how frequently are you getting sick or injured? GI distress. People, Huge, people so yeah. often think that, oh, if I, my stomach hurts, it means it's something that I ate or I ate too close to exercise. But just as often, it's because you didn't eat enough or you didn't eat close enough to exercise. So helping people understand that GI issues can actually come from inadequate nutrition. Um, I think you pointed out, pointed out this earlier and said it really well, kind of the normalization of like kind of feeling like crap or like feeling really tired during or after training. I remember that was a huge aha moment for me. Like the first time, once I got back to running after eating disorder treatment and started running, like eating before running and I was like, it feels so good. And it was just like not wrecked all the time. And I, but I didn't realize how poor I felt until I didn't feel that, that poorly, if that makes sense. Like I didn't know how bad totally. I had it until I was on the other side. And I think that's yeah. hard to speak to athletes about. But then I think from that, you know, how, how do people make sure they're not underfueling without counting calories. I think that's the other piece of it is being aware of those symptoms. Um, even things like libido, um, morning erections in males, a normal menstrual cycle for females, like all those things are also like things that you can be aware of. And it doesn't mean just missing your period completely. It can be a change in your cycle. It can be a shortened or lengthened cycle. It can be a lighter period. Uh, and so that's also where like tracking your cycle can be really helpful. So, you know, when those micro changes are happening and, you know, nip them in the bud and kind of do something about them um, before, you know, things get, things get too bad. So, yeah. Yeah. And, and I, I think kind of, you know, going back to the whole, am I eating enough tracking all this stuff, like going back to those pillars that you mentioned, you can sit there and kind of assess and, and for anyone who's listening, you can do that this on yourself. Like, are you doing those things right now in a very broad way yep. before you get all like microscopic yeah, and looking yeah. at grams and blah, 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 whatever, like take a really broad view. Look at what you're doing right now. Are you fueling before all workouts, all workouts, mm-hmm. even easy mm-hmm. workouts? Are you fueling during workouts that are longer than an hour, let's say, or anything hard or whatever? Are you eating after, you know, like just take a look at the consistency or, you know, how big are your meals? Like what's in your meals? Like, like just kind of play detective and get curious and take a look at all that. Like no need to fast forward and start like, you know, tracking every morsel into your body. Like, let's just like take a general look at things, you know? Um, and And I will say too, one thing I'm really big on is just this aspect of fun. I talk a lot about just like like having fun with what you're doing. And obviously Mm -hmm. we're not always going to love every workout or be all amped or whatever. We'll all have crap days and then we're feeling well, you know, come on, let's be real. Yes. Um, And, and also there'll be times where you're just like deep in the pain cave or whatever, but 
there, if you are not enjoying yourself while doing your sport and you're not having fun and feeling good, like there's something wrong there, mm-hmm. you know? And I think it, it really is linked to fueling because if you are fueling appropriately and you're taking care of yourself and you're being smart about rest and recovery and training and all that stuff, like you should be feeling good, ideally, right? You yeah. should be feeling good. And if you feel good, you can enjoy. And if you're out on the trails like I am, like I've been really experiencing this lately. I'm just like soaking it all up. I'm having the best time. I'm feeling great. I have energy. And it's great. It's fun. Because yeah. so like, so all of this is linked to this stuff. And it's why it's so important. And it's, I mean, now that I'm way on the other side, of course, it's easy to kind of look back and, yeah. you know, and and you were saying earlier, you know, kind of relating to your younger clients of like, I've been there. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I work primarily with adults, but I definitely do have, you know, a handful of, of collegiate and high school mm-hmm. athletes. And, and you see people who are really in the thick of it and yeah. you remember what that is like. And I'm, that's also when I'm like, I have been there. Like, yeah. yes, it's different, but oh my God, I remember that. Yeah. And, yeah. uh, it's, it's, yeah, it, it took a really long time, but I'm on the other side yeah. of that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but anyways, um, yeah, so I think that's all great. And kind of in terms of also the whole not necessarily just eating when you're hungry, the mm-hmm. way I like to think about it is, yeah, like intentional fueling or practical hunger mm-hmm. or however you want to explain it. Yes, it. Yeah, yeah, smart eating versus exactly. or athlete it's, eating. It's, or... Yeah, yeah. Um, the one thing I, I would ask, because, um, you know, we're talking about like, or you hear people talk about like performance plates and, mm-hmm. oh, if you're an athlete, you should be, you know, reducing your fruits and vegetables. When we say the word athlete, is there some sort of, and and this might be hard to answer, but like, how active do you need to be in order to get, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah. like, cause I don't, I mean, I'm sure you work with a wide range of clients. I, mm-hmm. I, I definitely have my kind of recreational, not necessarily doing crazy volume types of clients. And then I have my like, you know, hundred milers or mm-hmm. 200 milers or mm-hmm. whatever. So mm-hmm. I have the whole range. At what point are you you know, and someone looking at someone's training volume, training load and being like, okay, yeah, this is where we really need to focus more on this kind of athlete, I'm putting that in quotes, yeah. style of eating. I, of course, say that knowing as you increase training volume, obviously we're adjusting things, but you know what I mean? Yeah. Like the way, yeah. what we're mm-hmm. talking about now, who would you kind of call an athlete in that sense? I mean, to be honest, I think like, I think that is something that. I think if you move your body on purpose, you are an athlete. A hundred percent. Agree. And so obviously like within that regard, there is such a huge range um, mm-hmm. of ages and genders and just needs and preferences and like medical situation, right? It's just like, it's a cascade. So there, I don't know. I don't know if I can really answer answer that question outside of like, it really is like, it's a really personalized fluctuation of, you know, just make sure you're meeting your energy, like your energy demands. And also thinking about, you know, exercise and like most movement is going to be some stress on the body, just because that's how like exercise and movement works. Like, while yes, a lot of forms of exercise are also really great for us physically and mentally. They are also a stressor on the body. And not only is that a stress, but people also, I think, don't take into account life stress as mm-hmm. as a stress load that also can 
have an impact on exercise and have an impact on your energy needs, you know, or even things like having an active job. You know, I'm working with a high schooler right now who's coming out of eating disorder treatment and she's working at a deli six days a week. And to her, that is not exercise because she's a cross country runner, but that is like, that is a big activity load. And so even helping people understand that there are other other things that can factor in what your body is going to need from day to day and being able to take kind of that whole picture for each person and consider it when you're looking at, cause also like financial needs and cultural needs, diet, you know, dietary preferences, medical needs, like all those things go into, you know, the nitty gritty of like how much and when, and even like, you know, that performance plate of, you know, I think for sure someone who is going to be, doing a lot more training, especially if it's something like running or soccer, where there's a lot more stomach jostling, things like that. They need to be aware of that fiber load before they train, um, for sure. Whereas if someone is, you know, maybe hopping on a, a bike or just going out for a walk, that's not going to have the same risk of stomach upset as the runner or the soccer player. So kind of within that, even there, you know, none of those are better than the other, but there are nuances just from sport to sport. And so I think it's, yeah, just kind of understanding, okay, what, what are the role, like, why am I eating, you know, vegetables? What is the role of them? What are the pros and cons? Because vegetables also have cons, just like, you know, whatever (laughs) else we decide has cons. And so I think it really is just helping people understand kind of the, the when and the, the when, the what and the why. Of, of those different food groups so that they can feel confident. And I also like tell people that it doesn't have, it's like, it's not an exact science. Your body's not going to be like, no, a third of your plate was not this. Yes. Like it wasn't perfect <laughs> thirds. Um, your body does a great job of adapting to your intake. And, um, and so I know so many athletes are pretty type A and they get really caught up in, you know, doing things perfectly or exactly. And so I also let them know, like, it doesn't have to be like, it doesn't have to be exact. Your body doesn't operate in these like 24 hour blocks. It's really like a continuum. And so there is just kind of that education too. So, so yeah, I don't know. I would have like, I have a hard time saying, well, you know, this, after this activity level, you know, we start to talk about the performance plates. Totally. Um, so. No, I, I love that answer. And I'm really glad you brought up that point of looking at other aspects of people's lives because, and the reason I brought that up is, I, I mean, I agree. If you move mm-hmm. your body, you're an athlete in my book. Um, but we also have to obviously take into account as sports dietitians, like yes. obviously there's a, di- a difference between someone who's just running a few miles here and there and someone who's training for an Ironman yeah. or whatever, you yeah. know, or an ultra or whatever, right? Like there's a huge difference in what your mm-hmm. energy demands are. Um, but you do get people, and I certainly have had clients like this who are, maybe they're training for a half marathon or a marathon, or maybe they're even just kind of doing something, not even training for anything, um, but they're biking to and from work like two hours a day and then they're like a nurse or something Mm -hmm. and they're on their feet you know like there are all these other things as you said life stress but also like physical stress like I'm on my feet all day long or I'm doing this or I'm biking all over the place or doing strenuous work at home whatever it is um so we do take all those things into account which and I'm sure you do this in your initial intakes, like you're assessing the entire person's Mm -hmm. life right like you're asking all these seemingly unrelated to nutrition yeah, yeah. questions they're like why the hell are you asking me why do you to work yeah right. um because it's important believe yeah. me um 
so, you know, we're really taking this, we're doing this full assessment to kind of account for these things, mm-hmm. because if you are moving your body, adi- you know, in additional ways, it, it definitely yeah. affects your energy demand. So yeah, that's a really good point. Um, so going now to the kind of the eating disorder side of things. So you are working with people who are in, who are actively in the recovery, like they have active eating disorders and they're seeking treatment like they're inpatient as well, or like no. what types of clients are you, t- or outpatient clients, what type of clients do you have? Typically? Yeah, good question. So, I mean, a little bit of a range. Like, I, you know, once I do an intake, I'll, you know, determine if it's something that I feel comfortable doing on an outpatient basis or mm-hmm. if I think they need a higher level of care from the get go. Um, if I am working with someone with, you know, they said, Hey, like I, you know, I really do their intake and they actually, I can tell there's, you know, eating disorder present. Um, or they come to me saying like, I've struggled with an eating disorder or I am struggling with an eating disorder. Um, I do their intake and, uh, I feel like comfortable with where they are. They're not in a medically compromised place. Um, I will work with them pretty much all the time. I do apps that they work with if they are or that they find a therapist because uh, yeah. I think that's just a really important part of the the process like yes being a dietitian who works at eating disorders there is some semblance of therapy that I do but it, it's not it's not I'm not that's not my scope um and there's a pretty fine line between what I can talk about as a dietitian or what I should be talking about as a dietitian and what I need to refer out to and so I do generally recommend that and then depending on kind of their signs, symptoms, medical history. I oftentimes will also have them be working with a psychiatrist for co-occurring like, you know, anxiety, OCD, et cetera, med- like medication management and or a PCP to do like weight checks. Um, and so there are times where I'll work with someone for a while and then we just decide that like they need to go to a higher level of care for a little while. I've had like two, two athletes, um, over the last few years who uh, I just, we worked with them for a while. And um, while we made some improvements, like their roots were just pretty, they were pretty deep. And, um, and also, you know, that puts a lot for high schoolers that puts a lot of load on the parents. And sometimes even that just like is too, too much. Uh, and so I'll refer out at that point. And um, I have a couple different like eating disorder treatment places that I feel really, you know, really confident in. Um, and then, you know, oftentimes they'll come work with me off the back end of that. So it does, yeah, it does depend a little bit, um, even within kind of just that like realm of eating disorder, there's obviously a pretty big spectrum in terms of there's so many different types of eating disorders and, you know, how each person experiences their eating disorder is very different. And so what's triggering one person is no problem for another. And, um, and so it's definitely kind of, you know, working within the nuances of that, but uh, yeah, so I do t- take a little bit of a range, but definitely uh, have them working with a therapist and or either yeah, psychiatrist or PCP or both. And then I uh, will have referred to a higher level of care from time to time. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's it's such a hard I, I so I work with people who either have history or more of in the disordered eating area, or I also have gotten people where they've come in completely. Like I actually have gotten someone coming to me for weight loss, which I do very little now, but this was a while ago, Mm -hmm. came to me for weight loss, raging eating disorder, total denial, ghosted me (laughs) afterwards when I called him on it. Yeah. Like that happens. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, It's eating disorder. I usually... 
Yeah, I'm I'm like you. Like I, I definitely assess and and even before I assess, I'll make sure I feel comfortable and, yes. and I refer out. Yeah. But um it's it's really hard it's hard work. Mm-hmm. And um with people who are truly in the thick of it, this is often when I uh, well, not with surging, but within true eating disorder, I'll refer out. Um and the progress sometimes that you make is like measured in just like millimeters. You know, it's just it's it's a long road. Yeah, and and, and and so this is obviously like a huge topic, and I'm trying to figure out what my question is here, but maybe it's more just in the context of what we've been discussing so far. Is there anything you kind of wanna say about your work with athletes with eating disorders and what that kind of journey um, looks like or the types of things you, I mean, it's such a broad category and it's so different for everybody, mm-hmm. you know, I, I still, and you don't have to say anything else if nothing else comes to mind that makes sense to say here, but um, just giving you the opportunity to say anything else if you want to on this topic. Yeah, no, I think so. Obviously, you know, we kind of talked about, you know, those athletes who are unintentionally underfueled um, mm-hmm. and then with eating disorders, it still is a lot of that same stuff, but you do have that psychological mental component. Um, yeah. And so it's generally working with their therapist and having regular communication with them, getting, you know, if maybe I was the first person they started working with, it's, you know, updating the therapist or vice versa. But having that um, team, like cohesive approach is really, really important. And then I always have, you know, athletes fill out like a fear foods and food rules forms. And they're kind of a working document. You know, I tell them, like, I do not expect you to be able to think of all the foods that you're afraid of and all the rules you have around food or exercise of your body now. Um, you know, you're going to be adding things over the course of weeks, months, etc. And um, but that really informs a lot of the work that we do in sessions. And, you know, from week to week, I with my athletes with eating disorders or even just a little bit of um disordered eating or even just people who have like lost their cycle sometimes I'll I use a couple different apps for like a photo food blog where they don't have to weigh they don't have to measure they don't have to write things down um but they just snap a photo and upload it and it gives me a really good idea of like portions and volumes and 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 that kind of thing uh and so you know with that we use that kind of week to week and I can check in on things and um you know, we'll use kind of the things that are in their fear foods and food rules as goals throughout the week. Uh, And I also do challenge meals with my athletes. And so whether they're, if they're in person in Seattle, where I live, we might do them in person. Uh, But if they're virtual or if they're somewhere else in the country, then we'll do them virtually. And that could mean eating a food together that they're afraid of. um, Or it could mean, again, like breaking a food rule that they might have. And so that's a regular thing that I do with my athletes just to work on continued exposure and having that kind of support of someone kind of doing the same thing they're doing, having, you know, being able to kind of talk through it, help them through it um, or, you know, whatever it might be. And then um, it is, you know, doing a little bit of that, you know, helping them kind of work through, you know, well, where did these beliefs come from? You know, walking them through, I hate to say like irrational, because there's like Mm -hmm. so many of our eating disorder behaviors ultimately have become like they're protective in many different ways, right? Um, But so many of the, the fears that, that people have with eating disorders are in many ways irrational. Um, and so it's just helping to like educate them and support them through that process. Uh, a lot of the athletes who come to me with or without eating disorders have also lost their period. And so it might also be um, adjusting exercise. You know, that's kind of the last route that I want to go down. 
but sometimes it has to happen. You know, normally it's okay if we, how can we optimize your health and performance through food first? And, you know, sometimes I do use an exchange plan with some athletes if, if that's the support they need. Um, but a lot of times it's just working with, Hey, okay. Like I see that, you know, you're restricting carbohydrates in both meals. Let's like work on including carbohydrates with at least like two meals this week. Um, and then we work on that, you know, okay, how does this feel? How does this feel? Okay. Now can we include carbohydrates for all three meals? And so for a lot of people, it's just setting, you know, small goals like that. Um, and then sometimes there will be a little bit of like exercise modification, whether it's decreasing the intensity or the frequency. Um, I've only had a few athletes that I've worked with where we really had to cut exercise completely just to the the length of their amenorrhea or lack of a period and potential other confounding factors like low bone density or bone stress injuries or bradycardia, like low, low heart rate. Um, so yeah, those, those are kind of some of the, some of the different things that we'll kind of work, work through in the yeah. process. Yeah. And, and I definitely, that whole, like the food rules, the food fears, all of that, that's actually something I do with a lot of, cause mm-hmm. I mean, again, disordered eating or at least some version thereof is so common. Yes. And you kind of identify, and sometimes these things are almost in un, like they're unintentional like oh I, they're I'm subconscious like, I not- yeah no i'm like i notice you never add and like i notice you always have a salad at lunch and you never eat carbs mm-hmm. hmm. yeah i wonder why that is yeah. and they're like oh or like you only have protein and vegetables at dinner mm-hmm. hmm. you know and but so with a lot of my athletes I, as one of the exercises we do right off the bat in the first session it's like part of your homework you know is to sit down and think about do i have any food rules that yeah. i've kind of created for myself and they can be very intentional like I can only eat a bagel on a long run day which is definitely one I've heard many mm-hmm, times mm-hmm. or um unintentional or subconscious whatever um just as they come up or maybe they're fear foods and there's a lot of obviously like if I eat this I'll get fat that's a very yes. common one yeah, right yeah, for sure. um and uh that's almost entirely what the list entails is if oh I yeah X, xyz the, I will yes. get fat yeah um or it'll make me slow or yeah or, yeah exactly yeah, yeah. but almost always it's some version of fat because fat will make me slow yeah so yeah. it's like some version of that yeah. um so just wanted to mention that here is as another thing again that for anyone listening who just wants to kind of do a little self-assessment and get curious about stuff like you can sit down and write these things out for yourself and challenge yourself to maybe try some of these things and just think about like just mm-hmm. becoming more aware is the first step. Um, or of course, seek help from a dietitian. Yeah. It's always the best yeah. thing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like obviously if you have an actual eating disorder, please yeah. don't try to do this by yourself. Please no. seek help. Yeah. I was thinking more from if somebody is just curious and they're doing fine and they're just curious about yeah. these things. Yeah. Um, I think and even, and like, even, oh, sorry, sorry, go ahead. Uh, I was going to say, I think even one example like that, uh, an athlete that I was working with a few months ago, even realized we were eating ice cream together and she's mm-hmm. like I just realized that I only eat ice cream out of this dish and I said oh why do you think that is and she was like well I think it it limits the amount of ice cream that I can have and I was like that is an awesome awareness and so I was like okay well like how would you feel about the next time you get ice cream like putting it in a completely different dish or even what would it feel like if you just ate it out of the container um but even things like that like what what dishes that we put things in or portion mm. things into. I worked with, I had an athlete today and we were eating trail mix together for a snack. And it was the same thing. Like she only puts trail mix in this one bowl because it limits the amount and she knows the amount is, that fits in that bowl. So even things like that, where it's, you know, a specific plate size or whatever that you're eating on 
that people might not really think of as being a food rule, yeah. but that is. Well, rule. but don't you remember like that, you know, all of the, it was ages ago where I think it was like coming out of the Cornell and I know there's some scandal with the Cornell professor or whatever, but the guy who was like, eat with a small plate and like, Ooh. if you eat with a smaller plate, like, oh blah, my blah, God, blah, whatever. Yes. Yeah. I don't know. Anyways, it's like all that BS, you know? Yeah. Um, and I'm sure some version of that, you know, uh, mm-hmm. advice is still circulating widely. Um, yeah, no, no, for sure. Um, and I totally just forgot what I was going with this. Oh, yeah. Oh, I know what I was going to say. Um, for an example for me, though, is like, I just stopped eating mayonnaise at some, like for a mm-hmm. long time, mm-hmm. like way, way, way back yeah, yeah. when I had my disorder, my eating disorder, whatever. And I just never brought it back for no particular reason. Mm-hmm. It just was something I never bought. Mm-hmm. And one day I remember when my older daughter was very young and one of my mom friends had mayonnaise and she was like dipping it in something. And I was like, oh yeah, mayonnaise. I just like literally, and like I automatically order sandwiches just with mustard. Like mm-hmm. it, it's not intentional mm-hmm. at all. Mm-hmm. Um, just, you know, just what I do. Yeah. And then I'm like, oh yeah, mayonnaise. I'm like, I forgot about mayonnaise. And like, I was making myself some tuna fish and I put some mayo. I'm like, this is delicious. Like, oh yeah, this is actually, <laughs> yeah, t- like in my really mind, I was good. like, this is- I-, I think in my mind, I was thinking mayonnaise is gross. Right. Like, that's why I thought uh-huh. yeah. I just didn't like it. But I'm like, no, I took mayonnaise away because I thought it was fattening mm-hmm. and bad for me. Mm-hmm. And actually it's delicious. Mm-hmm. And I just made myself a nice and tuna salad today with mayonnaise. for you. Yeah, it's great. And I remember in my food science class, we made homemade homemade mayonnaise, which yes, is also very tricky same. but delicious. So hard to make, though. At least break the emulsion. But no, it's very good. Um, and so it's like, again, it's these things mm-hmm. that we just don't even think about sometimes. Yeah. You convince yourself you don't like something. Mm-hmm. And that was maybe in your eating disorder. And then way down the line, you're like, oh, shit, I actually forgot about that and forgot. I thought I like, didn't like it and actually it's yummy. And let's yeah. bring that back. So again, challenging everyone to just be aware of these things yeah. because they creep in. Yeah, they really they do. do. <laughs> and I have my athletes talk about, like talk about preference where mm-hmm. it's okay. Is this, um, is this a dis, like if you say, yeah, so is this, is this a preference or is this a fear? And so mm. I'll not only get fear foods, but I get dislikes and then yeah. we'll challenge that dislike list and say, okay, is this a true dislike preference or is it a fear? And I remember for me in treatment, I had a very, very long list of fear foods and, and dislikes. I mean, not really dislikes. Yeah. From the standpoint of like, I told myself they were dislikes, but they were yeah. fears. Things like Oreos or certain kinds of donuts. Um, but I went through the entire list and I would like highlight something if I actually liked it and then cross it off if I didn't actually like it. And there were very, very few items on this gargantuan list of things that I truly did not prefer. And like, would eat if I had to, like goldfish crackers, just not my preference. Like I really am not a giant fan of them, but if they were there and I was hungry, I would eat them. Um, But yeah, so even being able to, yeah, like you said, you know, check in, oh, like, is this, is this truly my preference or do I think this is my preference? Um, yeah, is also and also our taste buds change. Like not only as kids, but like as yes. adults, your taste buds change. So even if it was your true preference ten years ago, you may find it awesome now. So that's also, I, well. I was just know. about to mention that in the reverse. Like I remember as a kid, or even in my early twenties, like loving. And this is actually this is funny. It's like one of the foods I would have trouble controlling myself around when I was younger was like a Cadbury cream egg, mm-hmm. like you know, the coming out east or whatever. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I tasted one not long ago being like, "Oh, Cadbury cream egg." 
it was disgusting. Like I can't not even like, or even just like a normal Reese's peanut butter. I don't know what it is, but yeah. like or peeps or those things. Like I tried eating those things. I generally wanted to enjoy it, yeah. and I was like, this is gross. Like yeah. I don't yeah. like that. Not your so, preference. Yeah. Not my preference and not to yuck anyone's yum. Sorry. If someone really wants to eat that, please enjoy it. (laughs) Um, Anywho. Okay. Let's move on to menstrual cycle nutrition. I know we kind of started touching on it a little bit. um, And and we're specifically talking about the loss of your period um, in the context of red S, right? Mm -hmm. Or just under chronic underfueling. And, you know, as we said, like this is a really big deal among female bodied athletes. And even though it's very common, it is not normal, healthy or okay. Um, so I'm I'm wondering, you know, how you are approaching, again, you started to talk about this, but how are you approaching working on getting the period back um, and, and what kind of, uh, like, what this kind of recovery period might look like? And again, I know everybody's different, um, but what are kind of some of the broad strokes here that you're kind of looking at? Yeah, I think... I mean, you hit it on the head. Everybody's different. And that's one of the hard things about it is I can't have an athlete come to me and say, you will get your period back in yeah. a month, two months, six months. Like totally. if I wish it was that easy. Um, but definitely first step is me getting their menstrual history from the standpoint of like, did you, have you ever had a period? You know, some athletes will come to me at the age of 16, 17, never had a period before, um, 18, 19 even. Um, and so it's okay. Did you have, like, did you have your very first period at what age and then you know when was your most recent period how how long are your cycles normally it's getting a little bit of that information to understand how long they've gone without a cycle um or without a period and you know if it's just a couple months has it happened before you know does this happen every season uh which is a pretty common thing for a lot of athletes especially high school and college athletes to lose their period during their season but like you Mm -hmm. said just because it's common it's not normal and it's not healthy and it shouldn't be happening and it's also not good for performance you know I think a lot of athletes like oh yes I don't have to deal with it this is awesome but your period period is an ergogenic aid like it is a performance enhancing part of being like it, it is performance enhancing from just a hormonal standpoint and so um that's also I mean health first, but I think you do some athletes are like, I don't care about having kids. I just want to perform well. And so you also can let them know, actually, you'd be a better athlete with a period. And this is why. So there it is getting a little bit of menstrual history. And then, um, and then, yeah, it's, you know, working with, okay, you know, if they even say they haven't had their period for a year, I'm probably not first thing I'm going to do is not to just not allow them to exercise because that's, you know, a big part of their community and their, you know, mental health and their identity. Like, I'm not going to just blanket take that away because we know we we don't necessarily have to. Some people you do have to, but I will always dress food first. And it really comes to those four pillars I talked about, right? Of like, you know, fueling fully, getting enough, um, focusing on all the food groups. I do think when we're looking at getting our periods back, we definitely do bring down the fiber and bring up the carbohydrates and the fats. Um, just from female physiology standpoint, we need more carbohydrates than male counterparts oftentimes. And fat, fats are really important for hormones. Like our hormones are solely made up of fats. And so we've got to be getting those those fats in. And so I'm really focusing on the carbohydrates and fats, bringing down the fiber a little bit just because it does prevent a lot of important nutrient absorption, um, even some specific you know vitamins and minerals that are important for that hormonal production process. 
And then, yeah, making sure we're eating frequently enough, you know, eating in and around exercise is a hard yes. It has to happen. That's a big, um, big place of error, kind of like I mentioned already, that um, a lot of athletes aren't getting enough, uh, enough nutrition before and or after exercise. And so that's a really easy change to make to not only get more energy in their body, but to support that hormonal system. Uh, especially, you know, high school athletes, many of them don't have a snack between, you know, lunch and when they're starting practice, or if they do, it's really small. It's like an apple or an orange or something, which is better than nothing, but not adequate. And then, um, yeah, so those are kind of the, the primary components were, you know, optimizing total nutrition, focusing on a couple specific food groups, working on the frequency. And then, there we might have to, you know, after trying that for a little while, if we don't, or, or we'll usually start there and depending on what their training load looks like at the time and where they are in their season, if they're in the middle of their season, I'm not going to tell them they can't train. If they're, again, if like, if they're medically compromised, different story, but if outside of not having their period, everything else looks fine. Like I'm normally checking their orthostatic heart rate. So I'm looking at their, um, so you just kind of some heart rate data that they can check at home to make sure that their heart is healthy, uh, those types of things. If I feel confident, like they're medically okay, they can stay, keep exercising during the season. But if then if it's out of season, you know, it's things like um, ideally they're not exercising two days in a row or we're bringing down the exercise intensity. And so they're going to do um, keep exercise under an hour, uh, you know, kind of easy to moderate pace, you know, six days a week with a full rest day. Um, and so definitely, you know, it varies person to person, but when it comes to exercise modification, like I said, the first thing I'll generally move is intensity. This is the hardest on the body and on our kind of hormonal system. And I do really emphasize rest days between exercise days or especially the hard days where they're getting a true rest day. And so even if an athlete say is a triathlete or they lift weights and run, I make sure that they are lifting weights on their run days so that that rest day can be a true rest day. I would rather them run and lift weights a couple of days a week, like on the same day, and then have a full true rest day between those days versus run three days a week, lift the three days in between and have a full rest day. Um, mm-hmm. Even then, I like related, unrelated, I don't actually... <laughs> funny that I said it. I don't actually use the word rest days. I use the word rebuild days because oh, cool. as, I yeah, like that. as much as athletes feel like they're resting because we have a twisted sense of like, what is exercise? Um, uh, the body's actually not really resting on the day that you're not exercising. It's trying to rebuild itself from all of the breaking down that it underwent when you were exercising. And so I think just that reframe and helping people understand, because a lot of people have a hard time like eating on rest days, right? Like there's that guilt from, oh, like I shouldn't be as hungry. I shouldn't eat as much on rest mm-hmm. days. But if you can help them understand like your body is doing a lot of work on this day to actually make you fitter and like allow you to have those training patients, it needs the building blocks to do so. Um, so yeah, so those are kind of some of the things that, that all do from a, like a period management standpoint. Um, I do always, you know, ideally if they've lost their period, I have them get a bone density scan uh, just so I can know what their bone density looks like. Some of them may have already had a bone stress injury in their history or currently, um, but technically, you know, their bone density might be fine, but that bone stress injury history is good for me to know. And then uh, I will generally ask them to get a bone density test done just so I can know like where, where that stands. And 
Do we need to look at additional supplementation? Are there things I need to be aware of, even from an exercise standpoint? Because that's something where if their bone density isn't great, especially for their age, and they don't have a period, I will be more likely to adjust exercise, do more shorter bouts of exercise, do a lot more like loading type exercises. Uh, so that's where, you know, adjustments might come. And then, like I said, definitely if their like heart rate stuff is at all kind of skewed, that's definitely where exercise modifications will come in. That's super helpful. Thank you. How are you dealing with hormonal birth control? Oh, how long do we have? <laughs> I, I see this from, okay. I literally, and, and I, I'm so interested in this as someone, <laughs> I never, so I never lost my period and I got my period when I was 12, but I went on hormonal birth control when mm-hmm. I was 18. Um, when, you know, right before my eating disorder took over and I was on hormonal birth control for a total of 20 years. Yeah, you too. Okay. Not quite that long, but birth control pills. Mm -hmm. And of course, and I talked about this with another dietitian, of course, they don't tell you all the things that that does. No, it was supposed to get my period back and protect my bones. Neither of which it does. Mine was truly, so mine was just contraception. And I, I, again, never lost my period, but like I went through all the times where I was basically not diagnosed, but probably basically anorexic or mm-hmm. um, bulimic, all those things. And I have no idea if I ever lost my period because I was on birth control right. the entire time. Yeah. And yeah. it's, I just really wish I knew what my baseline was. Mm-hmm. And I can't remember what it was like when I was 12 and 13, you know? Right. So it's just really interesting to yeah. me. And then thinking back, um, so I'm off of it now, thankfully, but um, it's just, that's just such an interesting thing to me when you get a client who clearly has, you know, maybe they're coming to you with a stress fracture, they're clearly under fueling, you can't use the period as a sign of anything. So it's yeah. tricky. Yeah. And I is. don't know, and I don't know about you, but like, I definitely have had clients who also are resistant, like they will not go off their record. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so how do you, how do you handle that from kind of a treatment perspective? Yeah. I, I first, again, kind of my step one generally always educates. So I always ask like, why are you taking birth control? Um, yeah. is it contraception? Is it, I mean, some of my athletes, their doctor did put them on birth control to get their period back. And I'm like, actually, like that isn't your period. Um, it's just a withdrawal bleed and there's a big difference. Um, and so it's always finding out why, like, why are you on birth control? Um, and or IUD, like whatever, whatever they're using. So it's finding out why. And then the specific, you know, type of contraception does make a big difference, right? So, you know, like an oral birth control pill would be my, like a combined pill would be my least favorite and least least preferred option. It does not protect our bones and it does not give you, it doesn't give you a period. You just have a withdrawal bleed. And, um, and, and there, there can be a lot of just negative side effects in general, but Aside from those, like for me, I didn't have any negative side effects with my oral birth control. Um, but uh, so then you, and it, so and then you have the IUD, various forms of IUDs, which um, unlike a birth control pill, which completely flatline your natural hormones, you still are going to have like some of your natural hormones cycling and fluctuating a little bit. You generally can still test for like ovulation or even like body temperature and heart rate changes, which are signs of like a a normal cycle. Um, They aren't as detrimental to bone health. um, And even though many athletes do lose their period on the IUD, so you don't have the actual bleed, 
you still can track body temperature. You still can track resting heart rate as well as other symptoms because some people will still have those natural fluctuations. Um, and then there's the estrogen patch, which is not contraceptive, but does help with um, does help with increasing bone density. It's the one non like endogenous or um, essentially when I say endogenous estrogen, it means like the estrogen that my body creates on its own. So the estrogen patch is the one non-endogenous estrogen form, including IUD and oral birth control, that does actually help protect bones. And so sometimes athletes will have to go on that if they have, you know, they're borderline osteoporotic and they've lost their cycle and that kind of thing. So, um, so yeah, I think it's always, you know, asking why, learning about what type, how long, et cetera, et cetera. And then I think the more... For younger athletes now, I think birth control is more common. And so I have that discussion around, hey, this actually is not great for your bones. It's not giving you a natural period. Um, And, you know, sometimes I've had athletes, you know, shift to an IUD. Sometimes they stay on it. Kind of like you said, like they won't go off it and it is what it is. Um, Are you doing copper versus non-copper? Do you have like a preference there? Um, nutritionally, you know, I think there is some, some variation in, again, just the fact that like copper is non-hormonal. And so I think in my opinion, like the more of your own normal hormones you can have, the better. I think there is also some preliminary data, if I'm correct, that there are more positive associations and less negative associations with the non-hormonal copper IUD compared to the hormonal. Um, but honestly, like copper or like Marina or other kind of hormonal IUDs, uh, because the natural hormones aren't flatlined completely and there is still a little bit of an ability to check for, you know, heart rate and body temperature fluctuations, even if the period's not there, that's, I think, a bonus. And for anybody, regardless of oral birth control or IUD, various types of IUDs, if we don't have that period to say, okay, things are okay, even in a person without an IUD, I mean, I've, I was in, you know, treatment with athletes or not athletes, I was in treatment with people who full-blown eating disorders never lost their period and were not on anything. Like, the body's just crazy resilient. And um so just because someone hasn't lost their period also doesn't mean that they're they don't they're not struggling with reds, right? Mm-hmm. Um and so I think that's also an important differentiation because there are a lot of times where athletes will maintain a normal cycle and still be struggling with reds, uh just because it does affect every, you know, every body differently. Um but you know, if someone doesn't have that that uh kind of helpful sign we're like okay you are getting a normal cycle you're getting a normal period kind of that little bit of reassurance then it just does take a lot more being super in tune with our body in terms of okay what are all these other like early warning signs of reds um and i need you know i need them to be very aware of some of those um i mean oftentimes i'll have athletes fill out the leaf cue which is the low energy availability in females um questionnaire so it's essentially like a questionnaire for female bodied athletes to assess risk of low energy availability and there's one for males that's still being tweaked in order to be like really really accurate but 
Uh, so it does. It's just a lot more. You need to be aware of the other symptoms and other warning signs. And there's just a lot more. Uh, you know, there's sometimes blood work that can that you can do that can help a little bit. And then it's just you know a lot more onus is on them to eat you know eat adequately. And uh, usually when they do get the education around the role of a period and the role of a cycle from a health and performance standpoint. If they don't have, you know, full-blown eating disorder, there is a lot of motivation to pay attention to signs and symptoms to eat enough because they do want to perform well. They do want to have good bone health, you know. They do want to have a strong heart, all these different things. And so, like I said, you know, I think kind of from square one, my my approach is education because that also generally allows for a lot more buy-in from them as well to either explore other options and, or just be intentional about doing the, doing the work on the food side of things. Yeah. And, and I know you work, as you said, with a lot of high school and collegiate athletes and, you know, that population is always challenging because of, you know, peer, you know, caring greatly about what other people are doing and peer pressure and all this stuff. And, and of course it can work both ways. If there's good, positive peer pressure to feel yourself, that's wonderful. But I know I've certainly worked with plenty of, um, student athletes who uh, no one is feeling and their coach isn't necessarily telling them. And I know you give, you know, talks to coaches as well, I believe, and mm. kind of these seminars and things. And it's really hard to get someone to make changes when there just isn't this culture surrounding eating or drinking, you know? Yeah. Um, so I think just, again, continuing the education piece and getting people to be willing. I mean, that's really... I mean, the, the kind of eating disorder piece aside, just yeah. getting people to be willing to do this and to make it really part of the athlete culture, you know, is, is so key. Yeah. yeah. And, and coaches and parents, you know, oftentimes can be pretty, pretty harmful. Um, sometimes mm-hmm. even like inadvertently, you know, they may not even be yeah. talking about their kids' bodies or talking about their food, but, um, you know, I think there's just a lot of just old school nutrition beliefs that, you know, run yeah. pretty deep. And uh, when coaches are telling their kids not to eat junk food or parents are closing the kitchen at night, not letting their kids have nighttime snacks, you know, things like that, thinking they're doing what they should. Um, but I think that's definitely, you know, one of the biggest barriers that those young athletes face is they're getting so much nutrition information from parents and coaches. And then like social media is just another topic in itself. But, you know, usually those parents and coaches don't have a lot of nutrition education and the beliefs they hold aren't always helpful. Um, so when they should be able to look to kind of those people for support and help, that's not always how it works out. Yeah. And especially when you have someone who's young and who's under fueling mm-hmm. and they're maybe kind of getting to more binge style behavior or secret eating, they're craving sugar. The mom's like, sugar's bad, mm-hmm. hiding those types of things. Or yes. and you're trying to like encourage more consistent eating, but then like, I, I mean, I'm, I'm describing kind of a combination of clients I've had. Yeah, like yeah. they don't want to eat at school because no one's eating at school and I'm embarrassed to bring the snack to school and no one else is snacking. And, but then mm-hmm. I'm binging at night and then the yeah. mom's like locking things up and it's like this whole, I'm just, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's such no, a hard, it's so spot on. It's so, there's so much, or like the school won't let you eat. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. You know, or like, yeah, there's there's so many components, or I don't want to carry a lunchbox. That's embarrassing. That's lame. You know, there's just so many components to this. Yeah. yeah, I, I, I mean, I've, I've probably worked with far fewer clients in this age group, but I've worked with enough to, to get the full spectrum of it. And it's, uh, 
I understand that like wanting to work with a younger population to really make a difference and help people avoid mm-hmm. a lot of the yeah. the hurt and struggle that you went through and also and also it is so hard. <laughs> yeah. And sometimes it is. It's like the kids are great, but the parents drive me bonkers. That too. That too. Um all right. I know I know we're about out of time and I hate to throw the the male bodied athletes in the last minute thing oh, here. Yeah. I know we're mostly do you have to run right now? No, no. Do totally we want to good. Shut? Okay. All right. Totally I can good. ask you another question. Yeah. Cool. I heard the timer. I was like, oh no. Um, so yeah, I know you mostly work with female bodied athletes, but I know there are some um male bodied athletes out there listening to this. I know. So and a lot of what we said, like look, I lo- I know a lot of what we said related more to women, but um or female bodied athletes, but there is a lot out there that is mm-hmm. still, you know, that, that men can take the, that with them. Um, but is there anything else we want to talk about? I mean, you mentioned libido and morning um, erections, that kind of stuff. Is there anything else that is really specific to men that you want to throw out there, discuss that we haven't already talked about? I mean, it's definitely, you know, I think the morning erections piece is the one that is really, really indicative for male bodied athletes where like, you, they should be having morning erections. And if that's not happening, then like that is, that's one of the key indicators in a male bodied athlete of reds or low energy availability. Obviously other things can be going on as well. Like it's not like, okay, you definitely have that, but it should again, like it should be a warning sign. I think the hard thing with like with males is like eating disorders and mental health are already so stigmatized and it's definitely getting better and there's more language around it. But just because it's so people still assume like when they think of eating disorder, they think of like a thin Caucasian female bodied, like runner is like yeah. stereotypical eating disorder. Right. Yeah. People don't think that like fat bodies can have anorexia or like you don't see as much talk about like people of color in the eating disorder space or males. And so, you know, we know that like 20% of those diagnosed with anorexia are males, but that's just diagnosis. And so I think that actually, if there was more, if males felt more seen and there was more permission for men to have eating disorders, that we would see that diagnosis percentage be a lot higher. Um so, yeah, I mean, in terms of, you know, all the symptoms of reds, you know, all the same, regardless of what gender you are, all those like fueling principles I talked about, all the same, you know, really kind of the the one difference is we're looking at like warning erections for male bodied people, loss of a menstrual cycle for female bodied people, but everything else pretty much, you know, goes, goes across. So. Yeah. And the one thing else I'll also throw out there is just the role of stress, like mm-hmm. life stress oh, we sure. talked yeah. about, but like, if you're under a ton of stress, you know, I know some, some women, whether they're athletes or not, may lose their period, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know? Um, and I imagine it affects your libido and your erections as men. I'm not entirely sure, but I would imagine that. Um, so, you know, I, I think there, as we said, there are lots of different factors at play here and, um, we're primarily talking about athletes and and nutrition here, but just kind of remembering Mm -hmm. like with everything, there are often a lot of things going on behind the scenes. Um, yeah. Yeah. Is there anything else you want to add to this discussion that we haven't already kind of brought up? Um, no, I mean, I think maybe just kind of to touch on your last point, you know, since the topic of this is reds and you said, you know, we asked, we've talked a lot about athletes and technically, you know, red stands for relative energy deficiency in sport, but just because it has sport in the name and like the focus is, this is what happens to athletes. 
reds or like low energy availability can also happen in non-active or less like non non-athletes in quotes. Yeah. Um, because ultimately it's just like your body's not getting enough nourishment to meet its needs and it gets stressed and your like metabolism starts to shift and slow down. And so that can happen to anyone. Like you said, stress is a huge part of that. Um, regardless of, you know, exercise or nutrition intake or whatever. And so you don't also have to be like label yourself quote unquote as an athlete to struggle with like low energy availability or reds either. And I think that's important to talk about because I think it can be a little bit of a misnomer because sport is in, is in the name, it's in the acronym. Um, yeah. So hundred yeah. percent. Yeah, yeah. And that, and that kind of reminds me of, you know, like that kind of going back to part of, and that's partly why I asked that question about athlete mm-hmm, earlier, mm-hmm. like about how we define athlete, because I think there are a lot of people out there who wouldn't necessarily call themselves an athlete, even though they move and maybe they're just like, oh, I'm hopping on my Peloton every once in a while and I'm going for a three mile run or whatever. And or maybe they're not active at all. But, you know, as I like to remind everyone, like you sitting on the couch, you are burning lots of energy. Your body has to work really hard to keep yourself alive. And this is why you don't need to earn your food. I mean, there are a billion reasons why you don't need to earn your food. But like. You know, they're just, there's so many things going on that you can't see or feel Mm -hmm. that your body is doing for you because our bodies are amazing and we should be so happy we have them working um, well. And, um, and so, so I think that's an important piece. And as you said, like we can be in the state of chronic underfueling Mm -hmm. as a sedentary person, Mm -hmm. as a person who's injured between being active, whatever, in any situation, you know, like you can be chronically underfueled and in this state of reds if we want yeah. to you know yeah. in that context yeah so yeah i think that's that's a huge huge thing to to say that even if you don't call yourself an athlete this is something that you want to watch out for yep. and this goes it feeds back into that normalization of you know quote-unquote healthy eating clean yeah. or eating skipping meals eating, ha- or the skipping glorification meals, yeah. of exactly like yeah. i just want to lose weight whatever it yeah. is you yeah. are all in this zone of like <laughs> yeah. hey let's watch out for this stuff um I think that's a really great place to to end things. And I'm just going to ask you my few quick bites questions to wrap things up. Oh, what is your favorite pre-workout meal or snack? They're Ooh. not hard, I promise. Um, I would eat, if I'm looking for something liquid, I do really like uh, You Can. Um, both their discontinued flavors, which is the cocoa and the cinnamon. Um, or I will do a banana or a Pop-Tart. Those are probably my my go-tos. Okay, so you can maybe I need to give it another try. I am not on the you can train here. I don't know what it it couldn't get it to like dissolve yeah, or something. I don't I know mean, what it was. It's definitely the consistency is different than any other drink, which is why mm-hmm. I actually don't use it during exercise. Okay. And the reason I don't really like the fruity flavors either, but the reason I ah. like the chocolate is because it's like chocolate milk. Like the consistency ah. makes it like chocolate milk. And I really like chocolate milk. And so it's just like I'm drinking chocolate. Maybe I need to try this again. So, they sent me samples like a trillion years yeah. ago. They've and also I, come I think a long I, way in there. They have? Yeah, okay. their bars are way better. Okay. Um, I need to, and maybe yeah. I'll give it another try because this was like way before they had the gels and all this. And they yeah. sent me samples. I tried to shake it up. It was chunky. I was like, I'm not drinking this. Yeah, this looks no, disgusting. It's, it's, it's come a long ways. Okay. Yeah. I'll give it yeah. a second yeah. shot. All right. All right. I know it's very popular. Um, what about post-workout meal or snacks? So snacks, uh, I mean, shelf-stable chocolate milk. I have a snack box that I keep in my car. Um, shelf-stable chocolate milk is always in there. Um, 
So again, I would do something like that and or a Pop-Tart. If I want something salty, it would be like peanut butter pretzels or uh, even like chips and like pickles, something like that. Salami, cheese. Um, Or if it's a meal, if it's hot out, I would do like a loaded smoothie with, you know, like fruit and uh, some protein like Greek yogurt or protein powder or whatever like some nut butter thrown in there etc and then pop it with granola or put some oats in it um or i'll do overnight oats um or like a loaded yogurt bowl and then if it's cold outside i love making like gourmet breakfast sandwiches um on like on like an everything bagel uh and just like load it up i um i do make a good breakfast sandwich if i do say so myself so lovely those those would be love it love it What has been your biggest cooking catastrophe, if you've had one? Oh, biggest cooking catastrophe. Um, trying to think. I must have one. Um, oh, well, I guess this could count. I put a, it was several years ago. I don't even remember what I made. It was some casserole type something. Cause it was in a casserole dish. I don't know if it was like enchiladas or lasagna or whatever. But I had forgotten the burner on my stove was hot still. It was like one of the old stoves Ooh. that didn't actually give you the yeah. signal light that it was hot. And so I put the dish, the casserole dish, on the hot burner and it exploded. And oh, so there was like <laughs> glass and casserole Ooh. all over the kitchen. That would probably oh, be that the sounds horrible. disaster. Yeah. That sounds like a disaster to me. Yes, it was a disaster. How do you like your eggs cooked? Oh, most times would be fried over easy with a runny yolk and I will pop the yolk and dip toast or whatever in it, um, would generally be my, my go-to. No question. What is your favorite beverage? Coffee, iced coffee. I drink iced coffee year round, preferably nitro cold brew. Ooh, like if I could drink people. nitro cold brew <laughs> every day. Oh, it is so good. Can you make your own of that? Or no, you guess you'd have to have like a tap or something, huh? Yeah, there was this company that was selling, it was like one of those Instagram ads that I almost got suckered into, and they'd sell like the nitro thing and the cold brew coffee, but it was like one nitro canister only made two cold brews, and I was like, this makes no sense at all. So I I do have a coffee shop, Issaquah Coffee Company, that's like... Nice. just on the border of the mountains where I run and I usually work there before coming back into the city so they now know my order and my name and my dog's name and my dog's order so you know wait what's your dog's order oh just a pup cup which is just a cup of whipped oh, okay. cream okay yeah okay all right yeah that's yeah. so sweet I yeah. love it um clearly I don't have dogs but that's very cute. <laughs> <laughs> like what was a dog order <laughs> like steed milk no um and what are your comfort foods Ooh, um, I would say graham crackers and milk, um, was like favorite bedtime snack as a kid. My mom's spaghetti, her spaghetti sauce is like mind blowingly good. So my mom's spaghetti, um, I mean, just like fresh, hot bread, like a crusty bread with like butter or olive oil is Mm, just, it's not like a comfort food from when I think comfort food, I think of like food from when I, that I liked when I was a kid, but that is also just like, it is so good. Or like the smell of toast, mm-hmm. toast and then peanut butter. Just cause I, I 
go through an ungodly amount of peanut butter. Um, <laughs> yeah, those would, lovely. Those would those would be up there. What's your favorite ice cream flavor? Uh, I just like ice cream with lots of things in it. So I'm normally not like a chocolate base person. I'd probably go for like a peanut butter or vanilla base, but like lots of things. So I like Ben and Jerry's ice cream because the ratio of things to ice cream is really good. Um, I would Mm -hmm. generally not go for an ice cream, like just like a plain, like vanilla or like a plain chocolate. Like I want lots of chunks and things to like chew on. So wait, were you like a cold stone creamery kind of person where you're just like loading it up with Actually, everything? No. <laughs> I never liked cold stone for whatever reason. I think the ice cream was too, I don't know, like smooth mm. or like whipped almost for me. Okay. Um, so yeah, no, I've never, I've never been a cold stone fan. Um, but my girlfriend and I do normally have like four to six flavors of ice cream in our freezer at all times. What's your, so. what's your favorite brand? Um, do you have like a one, a go-to? Ben and Jerry's for sure. It's oh, Ben like, Jerry's, right. Cons- consistency is really good. Um, we there is a, a private selection um, lemon cheesecake that's really good. Umpqua has a chocolate peanut butter that's crazy good. So there's a few like select flavors of certain brands mm. that we yeah. found that are good. But I would say um, Ben and Jerry's Van Leeuwen is yes, a bougie very but very good yes. ice cream. Jenny's is also a bougie, but very so good, good ice cream. So good, though. <laughs> and then there's a local company called Frankie and Joe's mm. that is also very bougie, but very good. So that's my that's my spectrum of yeah, of yeah. No, where I lived in New York City, I lived kind of like on the edge of the East Village, and I think I had like six different bougie mm-hmm. shops around me, including Van Loon was one of the shops, and we would just kind of like you know jump around just... the different ones, and it was amazing. Yeah, <laughs> we hadn't ever heard of their ice cream, and then we went to one of the fancier grocery stores. I don't know, a couple months ago at this point, and just like the brand caught her eye, and so she got a couple flavors, and yeah, we were very very impressed unfortunately impressed considering the cost of the pint yeah yeah but, it's it know, is costly it is, it what is it costly is. yep yep um and last but not least top three items of gear that are most essential to your active lifestyle oh my trail running shoes Oh man, now I'm thinking about all the different all the different activities, skiing and climbing. Um, I got to choose. I know. I'm gonna. <laughs> favorite baby. I know. I'm gonna say my running pack, my trail running shoes, um, and then I would say my gravel bike. All right, there you go. Gravel bike one over the ski. it's more versatile it's all season yep awesome well thank you Heidi so much where can everyone find you online on socials wherever you want them to find you um I am building my website now so stay tuned for that it will be HeidiStrucklerNutrition.com but in the meantime you can find me on Instagram which is the primary uh social media platform that I'm on and it's at HKStrickler underscore sports all the sports rd 
Awesome. And do you work virtually or do you do. see yep. people in person yeah. as well? It sounds like um, my, my practice is virtual. So oh, okay. yeah, I see athletes around Got the country. It. If I have local athletes, uh, we still do a lot of our sessions virtually just because it's convenient, but yeah. uh, I will meet with people in person from time to time, whether it's like grocery trips or eating together or whatever it is. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah, well, yeah. thank you so much again. Yeah, it was so wonderful meeting you and Same. chatting about such important and interesting topics. Yeah. And yeah, I wish you all the best. Yeah. Same. Have a good one. All right. And that's our show for today. Thanks again, Heidi, so much for spending time with me talking about such an important topic. Give her a follow over on Instagram. She's amazing. Okay, guys, you know what I'm going to say. If you're enjoying this podcast, you want to keep these episodes coming. The biggest way you can support me is by subscribing to the show and sharing it with your friends. And of course, giving a rating and review wherever you listen if you haven't already done so. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. See you all next time.